OTC stands for over the counter, which is basically what you do when you know you're trading large blocks of crypto. So if someone wants to move a million or or three million dollars of Bitcoin, generally they wouldn't take it to the order books; they would take it to the OTC markets, and that's sort of the the trading that we facilitated there. Welcome to a Bit Cryptic podcast, where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now. It's time to get a bit cryptic. Today we're interviewing Kevin Zhu, co-founder of Galois Capital, a San Francisco-based cryptocurrency trading firm. Kevin is also former head of trading at the Kraken Exchange. If you want to know how whales move their money, how they make trades of millions and millions of dollars at one time without destroying the market prices. If you want to know some of the conspiracy theories behind Bitcoin Cash and Tether to see if they're actually true or not, and if you want to know how things work behind the curtain of an exchange or behind a decentralized exchange, this is the episode for you. This episode does get a little intense with jargon of trading and finance, so hopefully it doesn't turn you off because there's a lot of awesome information in this episode to be gleaned from someone who's arguably one of the experts in the world in this industry. So, without further ado, my name is Jeff Peterson. And I'm Alain Leon, a.k.a. Bitcoin Van Gogh. And let's get this episode started. Let's do it. Kevin, it's great to have you on the podcast. We're super excited to have someone of your caliber here. Yeah, that's really flattering. Really appreciate being here, and thanks for taking the time, guys. Yeah, definitely glad to have you. Before we uh, dive into what you're doing now, I want to learn a little bit more about your background. First of all, you went to UC Berkeley, which is awesome, and go Bears. Go Bears. <laughs> <laughs> but besides besides being a Cal grad and therefore uh, superior to most people, what got you into crypto? And kind of tell us your, your journey to going towards this black hole of abyss that we call cryptocurrency. Sure. Yeah, I got my start in 2011, and I was I was uh, working an internship at the time as a quant for Standard and Poor's, mostly doing back office modeling for their ratings. And on the internet, ran into uh, I think an article. I think it was Slashdot. I don't remember which one it was, but I think it was the second one ever posted to Reddit, and it was about Bitcoin. And you know, at first glance, I thought, oh, well, this is well, this is interesting, but you know, I didn't think too much of it. But as I started reading the white paper and digging deeper into it, I was really fascinated, and I thought, wow, this could really be uh, the next big thing. So, you know, using whatever money I had left after paying back my student loans, which were pretty, pretty massive, all my discretionary income afterwards, I, I put into crypto and I've been following it ever since. This is, I think, the time early on in crypto when just fell from, I think, from that bubble, it went from like 36 bucks to two bucks. So, you know, it was a really uh, wild ride. And uh, I think during that time, I was thinking, well, you know, you know, maybe this isn't the right thing. Maybe I made a mistake. I should just go back to school, which is what I did. So I, I, I left Wall Street, went back to school to get my master's in financial engineering, to, you know, sort of stick to the quant path and, and take that further. And then just as I was graduating in 2013, Bitcoin started pumping and, and skyrocketing. So I thought, well, you know, this is my passion anyway, might as well get back into the field. Then I've been in Bitcoin ever since and never really looked back. The first company that I joined was a, a small exchange backed by Y Combinator. I think it was the second crypto company to be backed by them. It was called Buttercoin. It was just like a Bitcoin exchange at the time. And I worked there for about two years running their OTC desk. OTC stands for over the counter, which is basically what you do 
when you know you're trading large blocks of crypto. So if someone wants to move a million or or three million dollars of Bitcoin, generally they wouldn't take it to the order books; they would take it to the OTC markets. And that's sort of the the, the trading that we facilitated there, in addition to the exchange that we had. And then after two years of that, a bit unfortunate, but there was a huge bear cycle in Bitcoin from 2013 to mid 2015, and Buttercoin was one of the companies that went under. All my equity in that company worthless, but definitely was a very good learning experience for me and helped me land my next job, which was at Kraken. And I ran the OTC desk for them for another two years. And then at that point, you know, I thought, well, I've been doing this OTC stuff for about four years now. It's about time to go set up shop for myself. So with Jesse's blessing, I left the company and I started Gelwa Capital. What we do is we're basically a hedge fund and we focus primarily on two different things. The first being OTC trading and the second being algorithmic market making. Relatively conservative and uh, sort of less speculative trading than what I think a lot of other funds doing uh, when they're doing long short token investing. That's something that we leave to them. We focus mostly on sort of the market neutral type strategies with uh, market making and OTC trading. Very interesting. So could you explain to the audience out there and also to me, because I'm not really familiar with a lot of this stuff, how does OTC trading actually work? Like what, what are you doing when you're facilitating an over-the-counter large trade? What goes on behind the scenes, if you can talk about it? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I think to start from end to end, from the first touch point with the with the counterparty, we have to collect some KYC information. We have to get them onboarded first before any trades can be done. KYC information being like identification information and, and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. So we trade with both individuals and with entities. And, uh, you know, for individuals, it's like, you know, identifying information like passport, legal name, you know, source of fund, stuff like that. And then for entities, it's like certificate certificate of formation, letter of good standing, uh, certificate of good standing, stuff like that, EIN number, stuff like that. That's really just to abide by US KYC laws. And then after that, there's an OTC agreement to sign. One thing that's very different between the OTC markets and uh, the exchange markets is that OTC in, in OTC, everything is post-trade settled. So what that means is basically you don't need to fully deposit all your dollars before you're able to buy Bitcoin. We can book the trade before we ever make that deposit. That's why we need this OTC agreement, which legally binds both sides to honor their obligation in the trade. So we book the trade first and then we enter into settlement. So now how the actual process works is that once we're done with this onboarding, you know, we're going to have some type of group chat with all of my trading team and with the counterparty. You know, we use Skype, we use uh, Signal, Telegram, WhatsApp, WeChat. So any of those are fine. Once everybody's in the channel, uh, they can ping us for a quote anytime. And what I mean by that is pinging us for a quote would entail providing a trading pair, a size and direction. So for example, I want to buy a million dollars worth of Bitcoin USD. If you give that, if you ping us for that, then one of the traders is going to provide a quote for that. So let's say we'll do it at half a percent above market, above the spot price. And then if, you know, the counterparty agrees, they say done, and then the trade is consummated and we enter into settlement. Generally, the way it happens is that uh, the counterparty settles with us first. Um, so they either ship us the wire or they ship us the Bitcoin if they're selling. And then in return, once we, once that lands, then we'll ship over our leg. So you're acting as a middleman for these really important trades, essentially, to make sure that everyone, you mitigate the risk that would be involved with making a large trade like this over a platform that may or may not work. Instead, you guys are like the the trusted middleman that can make everything run more smoothly. Yeah, I would say that in some ways we're middlemen in the sense that we're facilitating liquidity, but in some sense we're not in the sense that we're not really matching up buyers and sellers. Uh, we're always on the other side of the trade. So we're principal uh, to every trade that we make. 
And I would say that the advantages of doing uh, something over over the counter rather than on exchange is that uh, most of the times uh, when you're when you're looking to move a really large block, um, you're going to incur a lot of slippage. So first, you have to pay the exchange a fee. Second, you have to cross the spread. And then third, you're not going to get all of your order executed at the best offer or the best bid. You're going to slide through the book, and that's called basically called slippage. You're going to have very serious market impact if you're moving a large size of crypto. So you know, a way to mitigate that effect is uh, by doing things OTC. And I, and I generally think that we can show better pricing than the full slippage that's shown on the different order books. So throughout time, Bitcoin at, at several points, you know, it can be moved based on, on how you said the liquidity. And we've seen definitely certain situations where Bitcoin has moved significantly based on what would not be considered too big of a, of a trade. So you're essentially using your quant experience to to handle this. What do you do? You put them on different markets. You put them on more or less generally, or is it is it perhaps maybe even your own stock that you may already have? How, how does that work? Let's say if somebody wanted to put a, a large order that you yourself do, don't can't provide out of your stock, would would you do multiple markets? I should say that every time we do a trade with the counterparty, it immediately comes from our own inventory. So when okay. someone buys, you know, hundred bitcoins from us, we we do have a hundred bitcoin on hand. And then after we uh, sell it to them, then we need to hedge ourselves back to our baseline inventory position. And for that, we use a variety of methods. So the first way we do that is we can buy it on exchange. So we can use a smart routing engine to go to different exchanges to the different liquidity pools looking. For for the best execution. We execute over time. So we don't just market order everything, you know, to sort of minimize market impact, be as gentle as possible. Sometimes we'll do like a TWAP or a VWAP or, or some type of uh, iceberg order, that sort of thing. So the idea behind that. What's a TWAP, VWAP, iceberg order? A TWAP is basically time-weighted average price. It just means that every five minutes you buy or sell, you know, 10 Bitcoins, right? And then it, let's say you want to get to a hundred. So every five minutes you do 10. So then after 50 minutes, you've gotten a hundred done, right? So it's very simple execution. Obviously there are ways to improve upon it, but just as an example, that's probably a better way to do it than just, just to dump a hundred Bitcoins into the books. So, you know, overall that's sort of, that's sort of one way we, we, we do things. The, the second way is that sometimes um, a block will come in and then we'll cross it over to another OTC desk or chop it up into smaller pieces and cross it over to multiple OTC desks. And, you know, generally, um, if you share the risk, uh, everybody, you know, you also share the profits. So we do bleed off some profits to them. But at the same time, everybody gets a taste of the block. Everybody share, shoulders the same risk. Overall, it's, it, you know, works out pretty well. And then the last way is basically sometimes I just bought 100 Bitcoins. And then as I'm hedging it, maybe I'm down to 80. I've hedged off 20% of my position. Some guy comes in and he wants to buy 100 Bitcoins so that I can just ship him the 80 that I have left. Then I have you know 20 more to cover on market. With matching counterflow, that makes hedging a lot easier too. Now, you were saying that you usually quote the customer ahead of time. So they already know the price that they're going to get. A lot of this risk that you're talking about, is this risk that you're incurring? Yeah, exactly. So it's risk that we take on into our books and it's not every trade that we make money. There are definitely trades that we lose money and you know we, we have losing trades all the time. I just think that overall net net and on average positive expected value. So most of the time we make money. Okay. Now we quickly jumped into this topic. There was actually a lot there that, that you said in your original answer. And we, we, we focused on this because it was interesting. 
But I wanted to go back a little bit and ask you, because you said that first you got into Bitcoin or you heard about it, which happens to a lot of us. And then you kind of like put it off. And then there was the second time where you looked at it and you decided, wow, this is this is pretty big stuff. You know, this 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 could potentially the way you said it, it almost seemed to me like it could have far reaching consequences. It sort of the revolution that that, that we all talk about. What did you see that make you think that? I think it was just at the time I'd been in academia at least a little bit, and I'd seen a lot of academic papers before. But what I found is that the way that Satoshi stitched together all these different pieces that had already existed, actually, you know, he didn't have to innovate all of it, but the way that he stitched it together in this kind of mechanism in a way that it's self-sustaining and scalable at a human level, um, I thought was really brilliant. And I think, you know, just thinking about it from a game theory and, and sort of mechanism design perspective, I thought that was fascinating. Um, and then on top of that, I think, you know, back in the day, most of us that got into Bitcoin early, uh, we had libertarian leanings. So, yes. you know, definitely fell in line with, I guess, you know, Satoshi's own beliefs and sort of the reason why he made Bitcoin in the first place. So I think a lot of that stood out to me in particular, and I found it really interesting. And, and uh, yeah, I just, I just really liked it. It was such a short paper, but it, it, it said so much with so few words. Contrast that with today, you know, you read all these white papers from all these ICOs and, you know, sometimes, you know, many words were used, but not much was said. I think it was the complete opposite of that. So you, you quickly saw sort of what Satoshi was, was trying to accomplish and you saw not just the technology of it, you saw the economic impact. This is going to be money. I don't know if you saw perhaps many other use cases. But but you saw the utility of money that could not be inflated. Am I correct in that? Yeah, I would say it's a couple things. I think really the innovation behind Bitcoin as some kind of monetary instrument or store value is in, in the fact that it is censorship resistant, that the inflation schedule is deterministic, eventually asymptotes to zero, and then also that there is no senorage value, which is accrued to the mint. What I mean by that is that uh, normally with privately issued money or even publicly issued money, that that inflation where the money is printed has to go somewhere. That that senorage value has to go somewhere. And I think Bitcoin is really the first instance where we've seen new money where uh, a lot of that senorage value is burned up in the act of mining itself, meaning that uh, you know these miners have to expend real real world resources, uh, being electricity uh, and and a very costly amount at that in order uh, to actually mint the coin. So some of the senorage value is actually burned, and I think you know that is a more fair system than let's say. Kevin issues Kevin coin, and then you know I give myself from the mint and and from inflating the supply a lot of Kevin coin myself, right? So you know at that point a lot of the senorage value accrues privately to me as an individual. So I think having this kind of mining and having uh, real world expenditure of electricity and, and and resources in the act of generating the coin itself is really the first fair senorage system for a money instrument that I've ever seen, and I think that's really one thing that's very fascinating about Bitcoin. Now, you just described essentially how probably 95% of the ICOs were. Are you saying that you're not very happy about that? Yeah, I think, you know, there are some conflicts of interest with a lot of the ICOs. Um, you know, that being said, of course, I think a lot of them are building very interesting products. But, uh, you know, for the most part, I think there are some incentive problems in the sense that 
you may have situations where you know founders or insiders are able to exit before they start, right? So I think there are some issues there in terms of fair seniorage. I think it's not so bad because the ICOs they put into their white papers saying that well, twenty percent is just going to the team or ten percent is just going to the team and advisors. So it is laid out in the very beginning exactly what amount of the supply is going to who, and then once that's uh, determined, uh, nobody actually can inflate the monetary base. So I think on that front, on the seniorage uh, front, I don't think there's that much problem, that much of a problem with ICOs. But I do agree that there are some issues with incentives uh, for a lot of these ICOs. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a bit of a tricky subject. We, we had another advisor for the B token, uh, you know, Mika Matsumura. Yeah. I don't know if you if you know him personally, but one of the things we were talking about was um, how when he's looking at potentially advising or, or investing in a company, he looks at the structure of the company and how people are getting rewarded, especially the people internal to the company and making sure that everything is set up such that they can't just run away with your money. You know, there's an actual like stream of accountability that keeps the team motivated as well as, you know, fairly rewards them because it's, you're walking this tricky line of, you know, making sure that people get the value for the risk and the time that they, and energy they put in while still not giving them too much of the lion's share that damages the community. So, and damages the progress of the, of the project. So it's interesting. I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I think there's nothing wrong with incentivizing people who are working at the company with tokens. I just think that you probably want it to be on a vesting schedule and a fairly long one, right, at that. And I think at least longer than investors themselves. And I think as long as that's true, it's not so bad, in my opinion. Agreed. Uh, so I want to switch gears now. So you have this you have this unique background of having worked at, on the over-the-counter training, which kind of lets you see a little bit of the background of, of the quote unquote like whales interacting with the the crypto market. What's something that you've seen kind of working behind the doors of these exchanges that you think people misunderstand or, or maybe would be surprised to learn about in the in the crypto space? People always think the worst and um, they're in some ways rightfully paranoid, but I do think sometimes that paranoia uh, goes to extremes beyond what's actually real. A lot of people talk about how there are these huge invisible whales that are just manipulating the market. I'm not saying that there aren't, maybe there are, but from what I've seen, I think it's it's not so easy to manipulate the markets as much as people think. You know, if someone is just like dumping into the market to tank it or just pumping the market by buying tons of, uh, of crypto, they're putting real capital at risk and they they only get to make money if other people follow them, right? So if the market disagrees with them and moves against them, they stand to lose uh, tons of money. Like the the folks that were pumping BCH uh, right after the fork when it you know hit maybe about half a Bitcoin uh, for one BCH. I mean, those people lost a lot of money to pump it that high, right? Because the market did not take to that and did not follow them. So I think you know all these fears about these large whales manipulating the markets, um, from what I've seen, just isn't true. I would also say that there's other fears that people have had about whether or not exchanges and insiders on exchanges are picking off their stops or their, their margin call levels. I think from what I've seen, I haven't seen that happen, but I agree that there are some suspicious things that have happened in the past, right? Like there's definitely been a lot of- Could you could you explain a little bit about the, the margin call levels and the stops for people who don't actively trade? The idea is that if you have a stop up or you're trading on margin and you have a margin liquidation level, it's basically a price level where if the market moves against you enough, at some point your, your position is liquidated. 
with a stop that's intentional, with a margin call you're kind of forced to, it's basically because the margin that you have collateralizing your leverage trade just isn't enough. And at some point, the exchange has to liquidate you. So what ends up happening during liquidation is that it's a straight market order. So if you're getting liquidated on the way down, then you're basically selling market order of your position right into the market to be able to repay back the loans that you borrowed to get into your margin position. That's that's usually very terrible. It's essentially a forced trade. <laughs> it's, it's basically a forced trade and usually highly unfavorable because of the way it's executed, which is a market order. And depending on how big your position is, you could undertake huge slippage. And in fact, many of sort of the flash crashes and sort of the margin cascades that we've seen in the past in crypto, where like, you know, you see a, a, the market just complete free falls and prints like a super, super long wick on a, on a down candle way off market on one particular exchange, but all the other exchanges are fine. That's basically people just getting liquidated on their positions. And if you're getting liquidated, you're definitely losing you're not only losing money because the market already moved against you to the point where you have to get liquidated, but you're also losing money in the liquidation itself. So you're doing really badly if you ever get liquidated. So what some people are suspicious of is that certain exchanges, they're looking at these stop losses, they're looking at all these customer stop losses or where their margin call levels are, and then having that information, they know what points to trigger in order to trigger these kinds of cascades. And uh, I should take a step back and say that what I mean by cascade is that you can imagine a, a, a scenario where one margin call leads to another, right? One forced liquidation triggers then down to a point where the next liquidation happens, triggering the next liquidation, and you know, it kind of pancakes down. Free fall dominoes. Uh, like a cascade, yeah. It's like a free fall domino effect. Yeah. If people had privilege information and they actually used it, they might be able to take advantage of that and force liquidate the customers and, you know, obviously buy stuff up cheap. I think overall, I don't think that that happens, you know, from what I've seen, but I have heard rumors where you look at OKCoin futures way back in the day and then just around uh, the settlement mark and all of a sudden, you know, the, the, the futures price just like, or the spot price where it's pegged to, where futures settled to, just like rips up, you know, immediately and then rips back down right after the settlement point. So who knows who could be doing that? Maybe it was the insiders, maybe it wasn't. I, I agree that it looks suspicious, so I wouldn't rule it out. But at least, you know, at my time working at Butter Coin and Kraken, you know, Buttercoin didn't have stop losses or, or margin. During my time working at Kraken, that's definitely something that I didn't see. And I think um, Kraken in particular uh, tried very hard to put internal controls in place to make sure stuff like that didn't happen. Now, this is a topic that, you know, there's definitely a lot of tinfoil theories as to what happens in the background, as you say. And especially when, when newbies come on, um, they ask a lot of questions. Uh, somebody like me is in a lot of groups and we have to answer them. I see what they call sometimes uh, on the order books, but there's been, there's been two, at least two big events in the crypto world that have left a lot of folks asking questions. And one of them was when uh, Ethereum went down to, what was it, like $10 or something like that? It had that huge wick down and it went back up mm -hmm. and it triggered everybody. And there was a lot of people that were upset, theories, conspiracy theories going on about what happened. But that only happened on one exchange. Now, there was also what a lot of people referred to as a, the, the Roger takeover attempt with BCH Bitcoin when um, BCH went through the roof and it, and it actually had a, a bigger market cap for a little bit than Ethereum. Vitalik made that, you know, that tweet, you know, congratulating Roger. I wanted to ask you, knowing a lot of the things that go on behind the curtains, do you have any opinion as to what happened, let's say, on 
on on the first one with Ethereum and also on on the other one because in the other one it's it's almost a given to everybody uh, that has these comp- conspiracy theories that Roger Ver tried this takeover and it's almost amazing to to think about that if if that was an attempt how it was done across almost all major trading desks. What's your opinion on those two events? Um, Sure. Yeah. So I think for the first one, I think that is a classic case of margin liquidation cascade. So when Ether fell down to, you know, what was it, 20 bucks or something like that? Yeah. I mean, basically it was just on a particular exchange, a whole bunch of uh, liquidation orders uh, went through each one triggering the next uh, and then the price plummeted and then bounced back really quickly uh, because obviously that wasn't the true price, right? And things were just being liquidated way off market. Um, That happens because the books are really thin, right? You know, like uh, if if the total uh, position size that needs to be liquidated is like, let's say 10,000 Ether, but there's only like like maybe 20,000 Ether in the books uh, on the bid side, then, you know, you're going to have very severe price impacts. Um, it's going to clear off half the entire order book, right? So, um, you know, that's going to be a pretty massive move. Um, so I would say- yeah, So for listeners that, that, that don't understand as much, what you're saying is if somebody has a big order to put and there aren't that many- people willing to buy so they might be let's say like like 100 ethers at 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 you know $200 and the next and so on but somebody has a big order to sell when they put that order it's it's just going to go through everybody in there and it's going to take it that low is that what you're trying to say yeah, exactly. It's just smashing all the bids on the way down. And there's a not not enough bids to keep it at a high enough okay. price. So it just keeps going through the bids over and over until it's eating through like more than half the book, let's say. Um, so at that point, the price that's printed at the end of it is extremely low and off market. So I think that is a, a exactly a classic case of a margin cascade through a really thin book. On on the second topic where, you know, BCH was pumping, um, you know, definitely seemed to me that there was a coordinated effort. And I, I don't know who it was. I'm, I'm sure, you know, there's some usual suspects there, but it does seem like there was a coordinated effort to try and pump up the BCH price as high as possible. Because what they wanted to do is they wanted to it to get to a point where it, it would be self-sustaining. And what I mean by that is that they want the hashing power to be higher than Bitcoin. They want, you know, price to be higher than Bitcoin. They want the market cap to be higher than Bitcoin to the point at which it looks like maybe they can just overtake the Bitcoin network permanently. And I think it was sort of like an in tandem coordinated effort on both the mining side and on the price side uh, to try and make that happen. Now, obviously, uh, the market didn't take to that. And as much capital as they put to work there, and they had a lot of capital in in order to drive it that high up, the the rest of the market had even more capital and said, uh, we don't think the price is uh, where it should be. So we're going to we're going to push it back down. So I think that's sort of, in, in my opinion, what had happened. Um, and I think the people who pumped up the price to, to that point, at least the ones that uh, were late in the pump, I think, uh, suffered some very serious losses. Now, I'll ask you one more question on this topic, simply because I know there's there's a lot of, you know, talk still to this day going on on, on such topics and whether something like that could happen again. And we recently saw BCH, you know, essentially almost double from its recent low. Um, some people have said that if technically, you know, the conspiracy theory goes that if, if you knew the folks at Bitfinex, as as Roger did, and perhaps other, other of his friends did, that you could essentially, instead of losing money, what you're doing is you're buying and selling to yourself, and you can drive the price like that. And when you consider some of the, um, uh, some of the requirements that, for example, somebody like Andreas had 
when he was talking to the futures market and he said, well, you sh- the exchange you should use should be an exchange that charges a fee for trading so that that wouldn't happen. Is that a possibility? I mean, generally speaking, that somebody could manipulate the price of something like even Bitcoin, which it's, you know, it's it's in the billions, hundred over a hundred billion right now, by by buying and selling to themselves and therefore not really incurring as big a loss as they would have if they were an exchange in an exchange that possibly charged a fee or or if they had some sort of inside connection that didn't charge them a fee. Yeah, you know, I, I personally don't think that that's likely. Um, you know, if an exchange doesn't charge a fee, it's very easy to print fake volume, but it's still very hard to move the price up or down uh, that massively. And uh, the reason being because there's other bids and offers in the book. So even if you're trying to trade with yourself most of the time, as you push up the price, you have to clear all the intermediary offers. So everything between where your offer is and buying order, right, your buying market or your buying crossing limit order, everything in the middle that's everybody else's offers and you have to clear that in order to hit yourself anyway so i think to print fake volume yeah i think there's definitely some consideration on zero fee exchanges printing fake volume i think we i think you know in the past a lot of the chinese exchanges that's something that they've been doing but i think at this point to actually drive up the price or drive down the price that's that's not so easy to do and i think you would definitely lose money uh doing it well, i'm glad you're here to help us solve some of these uh tinfoil theories we can we can clear away some of the some of the misconceptions out there because we had a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, this is what this is what a lot of people are talking about, and even traders, you know. So I so a lot of people that come from the trading market and they come into the Bitcoin market and they see that there's not as big a volume. It's 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 a conversation that just won't die, and it, people are having it. We need we need insiders like you to give us the give us the scoop. <laughs> sure thing. Speaking of conspiracy theories, I think one that has been going around a lot uh, is you know whether or not Tether is solvent. Yeah, right. That's a big and one. People have done all sorts of analysis on this, this, and that. I personally think that Tether has some issues, but I think it is solvent. And the reason I think that is because having an inside look at an exchange, I know that these institutions are basically machines that print money. So it's it's like it's not that Bitfinex can't afford to have two point five billion dollar float in tether like i think that's probably fine i think really the issue is and this is why in my opinion bitfinex dismissed their auditor and you know didn't work with them anymore and uh, you know there's been so much fud around this stuff is that i think bitfinex had some issues on their accounting books from back in the day when the hack happened now in the end they paid everybody back but i think there was still some asset liability mismatch what i mean by that is that you can be solvent in dollar terms but you could have the wrong asset right so you could just be like in terms of how much you owe people in Bitcoin and dollar. Maybe you only have dollar, but you have a lot of dollars. So notionally, you're solvent, but your assets are mismatched, right? Because you actually need Bitcoin. Uh, you need some Bitcoin. So paying paying everyone back in dollars, it's like, okay, we didn't give you back your Bitcoin, but we gave you the same amount of dollar worth. So yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Be happy. So I think on their internal books, they may have had some, um, some dirtiness in the accounting. And because of that, they'll never pass an audit, um, even though they're actually solvent on the tether side. And then, you know, just as a, as a refresher for everyone. Yeah. The, the Bifinex's holding company owns tether. 
right? So there's there's a there's a holding company for Bitfinex called iFinex, and there's a holding company for iFinex called Digfinex. And Digfinex is the is the master holding company, and they own a whole bunch of different um, investments in the crypto space, including in Tether. Yeah, that's a that's a big conspiracy theory that's been going around for a while. We have uh, um, guys such as Bitfinex. You know, which has been putting out those those articles talking about how they've you know overinflated their float and and has everybody scared. Mm-hmm. But there, which brings us to a, a good point, I think. I think there is there is this need to have something like tether, right? Or, or at least the market seems to want one. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Circle and their recent announcement that they're working on on a coin i think they're calling it stable coin or something like that uh, i think it's usd, USD coin, coin right usdc yeah, yeah usdc mm-hmm. now so can you talk a little bit about that need and, and and what it fulfills in the market why would an exchange want a coin that tracks the dollar mm-hmm. sure yeah i think there's a there's two fronts to that the first is that there's a lot of exchanges that don't accept you know actual uh, fiat that you know either they can't get banking or you know th- you know the whole process just takes too long um, so they use tether right and it's because you need to have some asset that is very short-term stable and so far none of the cryptos are you know bitcoin swings up and down uh, quite massively every day and all the altcoins swing up and down even more uh, more than bitcoin so having some kind of base um, uh, of safety i think is important for a lot of traders uh, who want to trade back and forth who are sort of like day traders um, and you know a stable coin fulfills that niche. Now, in terms of the types of stable coins that exist, there's basically three categories, right? So one is uh, the tether system where there's like physical dollars in a bank account backing the tether or the tethered coin one for one. And there's some type of redemption or creation uh, cycle, right? So if I deposit dollars, I can create a tether. If I redeem the tethers for a dollar, then I can withdraw a dollar, something like that. Now, whether or not that's actually possible with tether, you know, for, for normal uh, people, for normal retail traders, I think, you know, uh, might be a little bit difficult. I do know that Bitfinex allows certain redemptions for some of their larger customers, but uh, but overall, that's sort of like the tether system. And USDC, what Circle is doing, is similar to that. It's a, it's in the same vein. And I think there's also like uh, what was it called, like trust token or something. They're trying to tether up real world assets. I, I forget what they're exactly called, but they're trust something. But they're all basically based on this tether premises where there's some real world backing one for one with a coin. Uh, there's other there's two other styles of stablecoin in general. One is like Maker and Dai, and what they're doing is basically collateralization. So you're collateralizing using some other type of volatile asset, being ether, ether, or like some other kind of asset. And then there's some kind of algorithm that maintains stability of the stablecoin and uh, will either call for more collateral or liquidate collateral if the backing is insufficient. So it's essentially an algorithm back there that's trading back and forth with ether as it's like backing as opposed to using a more stable currency like dollars. Yeah, something like that. It's like a it's like a collateralization system. And then the last branch or the last uh, sort of style of stable coin is what Basis is doing, which is based on something called Senuraj shares. And it's a way to have an algorithmic central bank. So when the price gets too high, then more of that coin is printed and supply is introduced into the economy. And then when the price is too low, then there's some mechanism for contraction of the of the monetary supply. And then there's a whole series of ways that they do that. They have base shares, they have base bonds, they have base coin itself. It's a pretty complicated mechanism, but I think overall, between all the stable coins, they generally fall into one of those three categories. Teaching me a lot about stable coins. I didn't know all this, actually. 
every every podcast we learn something new. <laughs> yeah, and there is there is a lot of worry about these these coins these that essentially track the dollar, particularly as we were talking about tether. You know, if if you see the market uh, tanking. And you want to go into safety. Uh, most places have tether, but now you're scared because you're reading all this FUD and you're not sure wh- whether to believe it or not. And um, there's definitely a big need for it. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And maybe I can say just one last thing about tether, which is that there is some very serious risk that some of these exchanges take. And what I mean by that is that there are certain exchanges that accept tether one for one as if it were dollar, while there's other exchanges I think mostly just Kraken and a couple of smaller ones, which have a floating price for USDT against USD. So I think it's better to do it that way, because if there is some real counterparty risk on whether Tether is redeemable or not, or whether it's fully backed, it'll get reflected in the market price, right? So Tether doesn't have to trade at parity. It can trade at 99 cents or 98 cents, uh, or even further lower if people think that the counterparty risk is significant. Now, for exchanges that accept it one for one, they may have some risk on their books where they're accepting all this tether for dollar, but really the asset they're accepting is not worth a dollar. Maybe it's only worth 95 cents or 96 cents, right? And then they're shouldering a lot of this tail risk um, if tether ever implodes. Now, I happen to think that they're solvent, but could be wrong. I mean, there's always some risk and I think the market prices it uh, reasonably well. I would imagine working there is probably even worse than working at Apple where they make you sign 10 million NDAs and if you break it, you know, they take your firstborn child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. So uh, we're right. getting low on time, but I, I want to get back to um, what you're doing currently. So you you created this company called Gawa Capital. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Tell us a little about about that and what and what you're doing currently, and and what you guys are are. are uh, innovating in the crypto space of that. Yeah, sure. So I think the sort of immediate need that we fulfill right now is just facilitating liquidity in these large blocks where you know maybe the counterparty themselves don't really know how to execute on the markets or haven't built out the infrastructure to do so. So in that way, there's some infrastructure or execution arbitrage in that we can execute better than the counterparty. So there's some differential there and we pocket part of that and they pocket part of that uh, value. So I think that's sort of the sort of value add that we provide. And then in terms of, you know, some of the things that we've been innovating to be forthright, I mean, we're, we're hedge funds. So, you know, we have fiduciary duty to all of our limited partners. And the name of the game is basically to turn capital into more capital. So that alone, I think, is driving a bit of innovation, at least on sort of the infrastructure side. Uh, we had to build out our uh, full stack accounting, routing, and execution platform, uh, order management system, and everything. So I think um, that's something that I haven't really seen that exists right now in the crypto space. And it's something that we've been approached by many other hedge funds uh, for licensing. And I think, you know, it's just a matter for us to decide whether or not we want to go down that route and partially become a product company. I'm leaning towards no, but I think, you know, maybe that that's a possibility. Uh, But yeah, I think overall, in terms of infrastructure, if you look around, there's different folks that do different things. So you have SFOX that does smart routing. You have LibreTax that does tax. You have TradeBlock that does OTC trade settlement and reconciliation, but you don't really have sort of a full stack solution for everything. And, you know, with all every third service provider that you use, you have to pay them. So I think having this kind of end to end solution, I think is is an interesting piece of our tech stack. And it's, it's definitely been very beneficial for us. And I think the, the world is moving in that direction. I, I certainly if the institutional traders are coming in, they're going to have to either build it themselves or find some kind of solution or stitch together multiple pieces of, of, of that solution. You know, I think overall, that's sort of, you know, what we're looking at right now 
Galois Capital. And I think the next step for us is to move more heavily into algo trading. So uh, the reason we want to do OTC is that I think, you know, in the beginning, there's a lot of low hanging fruit and the markets are very inefficient. And we provide a very nice white glove service for, for people to, to move around large blocks. But eventually margins are going to get crushed on that. You know, eventually competition is going to come in. There's going to be uh, more generic tools that are available to everybody for execution. Everything's going to become more automated and electronic. So I definitely see margins coming down over time and eventually the space um, contracting on the OTC side. Uh, but that's also why we set up a second line of business, which is the algo market making piece. And I think that's more for the longevity of the business once things become more algorithmic and more electronic. That's sort of what we're focusing on. Both sides grab some low hanging fruit while it's still there, but also have an eye towards the long term for the longevity of the firm. So this is not really available to retail investors. Yeah, for the most part, none of this is available to retail investors. And, um, you know, I mean, they could build it themselves, but it, it is a very, it's a very large undertaking. It took us basically nine months to build out the, the full stack. And, and obviously from, from the way you were describing it, it seemed like you used a lot of your OTC experience and a lot of the needs that you felt from before as you were giving some of your business to other folks that also did OTC in order to fulfill a client's request. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of inventory management thoughts on the OTC side that translate well over to the algo market making side. Uh, but I also think, you know, working at an exchange and, you know, sort of both me and my co-founders are quants and uh, he, he's even more, he's much more technical than I am. Um, so I think, you know, given our, you know, our backgrounds, it also helps in sort of seeing kind of what we need in order to take this thing to, you know, a much faster and uh, efficient style of trading. Now you're on the trading side of things. How do you see uh, decentralized exchanges? Uh, what do you think is their impact? Do you have anything to say about the technology and perhaps how soon it might actually get implemented into, in, to a certain degree that, that really takes a considerable share of, of market trades, um, you know, there are some exchanges that technically are decentralized, maybe like Ether Delta, but essentially, uh, generally speaking, where do you see that technology? It seems like you're, as you mentioned, you're thinking about the future, you're setting up another business having to do with algos because you foresee this low hanging fruit as you referred to it eventually disappearing. So where does things like zero X and other decentralized markets, maybe even mm -hmm. uh, something like EOS, which, you know, is going crazy right now. And they think this is going to be a platform that perhaps could be used for things like that. What do you have to say about that? Sure. In terms of the decentralized exchanges, I definitely like the zero X model more than any other one. I would say that, you know, the real problem with Ether Delta is that every time you post or cancel an order, you have to pay gas uh, to the Ethereum network. And I think, you know, that's just very inefficient for market makers because you always need to adjust your quotes all the time because the markets are moving very quickly. And because of that cost, you know, there's just not going to be that much liquidity in those kinds of markets. So I think 0x, I think is doing it a lot better. Now, I originally had some criticism of 0x along the lines of minor front running, which is basically this idea that even though the relaying of the order book happens centrally on these relayers and settlement happens on chain, still you have this problem where Ethereum functions on block time rather than continuous time or, or sort of like human time, meaning that block is produced every 15 seconds. And if I see that you're trying to take an order on some relayer, I can read that, I can use that information in what I want to do next, and then get my own transaction included in the same block as yours. And thus it happens at the same time. And the most malicious way to do this is that I see the, the settlement that you want to do, the order that you want to take, 
and then I just pay a higher gas cost after you, um, and I'm able to snipe that order from you and basically front run you on that by paying a little bit more gas. So I think the, uh, Will Warren had a really great uh, blog post about this. It's I think minor front running and griefing part two. You know, highly recommend it. But he basically proposes a number of solutions. The two solutions that I agree with that I think work are that one way to avoid this kind of you know this kind of race condition you know, and front running problem is that you have some kind of commit and reveal scheme where you commit to a contract and it's the contract itself that takes the order off the book. Uh, and then if two people try and uh, commit and uh, then reveal to take the take the order off the book, whoever committed first gets that actual order, right? So then you can't just react as you know as a, as a guy who's trying to front run, you you can't just react um, to reading what people are settling on because your commit is going to be later than their commit because they pre-committed earlier. So I think that's a good way to do it. I think their trusted execution coordinator also works, and I think it can be centralized or semi-centralized. I don't think that matters as long as there's competition between these execution coordinators and there's a good reputation system, I don't think that it matters that those things are, are decentralized or not. So I think overall they've solved those problems. I would say that there are two remaining problems for ZeroX, or really three remaining problems. And uh, starting from, I think, the least important ones, I think one of the issues that they have is that the ZRX token itself right now has been cut out of fee payment from a lot of the different relayers. So what exactly is the ZRX token useful for? Well, it's useful for governance, right? But how much is that worth, right? You could arguably say that uh, in the long run, ZRX could be very uh, successful, but at the same time, its token value stays very low, right? Because nobody has any real demand for the token outside of governance, right? So the protocol itself could just work even without a token. You could just pay gas and ETH, right? Like if I'm trading ETH against Augur, it makes sense that I have some ETH and Augur to pay fees with, right? Like why do I need a third token that just introduces friction and ruins the, the user experience, right? So I, I don't really see a need for ZRX as a token, uh, but I could see that the the you know the 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 project itself could be very successful and uh, with a lot of volume in the future. Now the second problem that I see is really a problem that plagues all of the Ethereum tokens, which is the CryptoKitties problem, which is basically a scheduling problem where whereby a lot of applications on the chain compete with each other for gas, right? And uh, if there's a lot of activity on one, then it's driving up the gas cost um, and the gas price for all of the other applications, right? So you can imagine it's like the 2020 presidential elections, and let's say is working and everybody's betting on that, then all of a sudden Golem has to stop all of its like protein folding. You know, all the gambling contracts have to stop. Basic transfers halt because it just costs like $50 to transfer some ether. You know, there's a huge scheduling problem because everything uses the same gas, right? And they, each one can drive up the cost for each other. So I would have liked to see ZRX not as an ERC20 token, but rather um, as a chain of, it, of its own. But I think obviously it's not too late for that. They can always build their own chain, you know, either do proof of work or proof of stake and then cut over where one for one any ZRX token holders get one new ZRX on the new chain. So I think you know I think maybe that's a solvable problem. And then I think the last point is that the the whole reason why people are developing decentralized protocols or decentralized exchanges really is because it solves the custody problem, right? Where you know you have all these in, in Bitcoin's history and crypto's history, you have all these exchanges getting hacked and you know that's not a good thing. But now with a decentralized exchange there's no central custodian to get hacked, right? So you've solved that problem. But I wonder right now, how much is that problem quantitatively worth, right? Like what is the actual probability of a large exchange getting hacked in a year? I would say at this point for the largest exchanges, maybe 
you know, 1% to maybe 3%, maybe you could even stretch it to 5%, right? Like that, 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 that's possible, I think on the high end, but that's possible. But what's the expected value for having, you know, no counterparty risk there? Well, you reduce your skew risk, right? You reduce your skew risk, but it's not 10x better, right? Generally for people to adopt new technology, the technology actually needs to be an order of magnitude or even like, let's say half an order of magnitude better, right? Not just in expectation 5% better, right? Now, obviously the skew risk counts for a lot. So maybe we could double that and say 10%, but even a 10% improvement on an existing infrastructure maybe is not enough to get people to switch over to new technology, figure out how all these smart contracts work, you know, integrate, you know, just onboard market makers. I mean, the whole thing is like, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of an undertaking. So I think ultimately the challenges that the, these decentralized exchanges are going to face is how do they actually get liquidity onto their platforms, right? Like all these centralized exchanges have all these networks effects because liquidity effects are so strong Mar market makers go to where takers are uh takers go to where makers are so you're kind of locked in to a certain you know a certain kind of uh, market share between the different exchanges and normally the way to go you know, to port over market shares, you, you start off, you start off on the maker front and you, you contract with all these market makers, you pay them some amount of money and they market make on your exchange and eventually like takers start coming, right? So you seed one side of the market uh, with subsidies uh, in order to foster the other side of the market. Now, you know, with, with zero uh, X, I mean, can they actually do that? Do they have enough of a budget to do that? And should they be the ones incentivizing market makers onto this decentralized platform, right? So I think there's a lot of questions there. So ultimately it just comes down to whether or not these decentralized exchanges can overtake the network effects of decentralized exchanges, even at the trade-off of speed, given that they solve the custody problem. So hard to say. Well, as much as I'd love to continue talking about this, because this is a really fascinating topic and, and you know a ton, uh, we are pretty much out of time. So I want to know if you have anything to leave the audience with and if they want to find you how can they do that sure i think just to share with retail traders is that i i personally think and this is my just my opinion i could be wrong but i personally think that people over trade and they trade much too uh frequently i think it's a lot easier to play the macro game where you're making you know one or two bets every month or two months rather than just every day making you know 17 30 trades so you know just you know a little piece of advice uh, could be wrong but just my thoughts and then in terms of where people can find us galois.capital we're also on twitter uh, just look up galois capital yeah really glad to, to be on the show really appreciate you guys having me so you're saying unless unless uh, a computer is doing all those instant trades for you you're probably better off not uh, not doing them yourselves yeah i would say that you either want to get into the micro frequency where it's sort of like you know you're trading like as much as possible thousands of trades every minute or you want to be super slow i think everything in the middle is very saturated and uh, much more like gambling on the sort of hft side you want to look for competitive advantage and speed and efficiency on your algos. And then on the macro side, it's all about having contrarian ins uh, insights where you're actually correct. Now, it's not about being contrarian for being contrarian's sake, but to be right when everybody else is wrong is where you get the biggest payoff. But I don't see that happening on sort of the day-to-day. -day. I think those are much more long-term bets. And you have really have to look at sort of uh, value propositions of things in the long term and then also sort of reflexive effects in the market where, you know, you, you know notice like hype cycles or fear cycles. So that, that's how I think. About so again, that's Galois Capital. Galois is spelled G-A-L-O-I-S. It's French. Dot capital. You guys know how to spell capital. Thank you so much, Kevin. I would love to probably bring you back on the podcast because there's just so much that 
we could have kept talking about we just didn't have time for. Yes, please come back. <laughs> we want to pick your brain more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Happy to be back anytime, yeah. guys. Yeah, really, really appreciate uh, you guys taking the time. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys learned a lot. I think a lot of this I'm going to have to like decompress because there's a lot of trading stuff that I'm not familiar with that I learned about on the fly here. So thank you again so much, Kevin, for, your, for your sharing your knowledge with us. And go Bears. Yeah, really appreciate it, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah go Bears. Thanks, <laughs> <Kevin>. <laughs> All right, have a good one. Yeah, take it easy. Bye. Thank you for listening to a Bit Cryptic podcast. A Bit Cryptic podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Show production and editing is done by the miracle maker, Joanna Marie Nicholas. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember... Keep it cryptic.